Exodus chapter 33, get some, uh, some Old Testament in your bones. And it's important uh, as you flip there, if you're curious where Exodus is, go to the front. In the first book of the Bible is Genesis, and the second book of the Bible is Exodus. And we're going to be in chapter 33, and I'm going to read 12 through 23, the end of the chapter, but I'll, I'll reference what's going on. Before it, but but it's important when we come to the Old Testament, and I feel like I say that I need to say this a lot uh, because the Old Testament is uh, it feel I mean the New Testament's culturally distant from us, but the Old Testament is like super culturally distant from us, and uh, and so there's stuff in there as you're trying to read through the Bible, which I, we're doing right. We're walking through the chronological. I hope you're still sticking with that, the chronological reading plan. Um, but as we go through it, we, we come to the Old Testament and we think, well, what do I do with this? And it's important that you don't just say, well, uh, uh, it, you don't just take them as moral fables. You know, hey, like, like Aesop's fables, you know, well, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't be like this guy or I should be like this guy. I shouldn't be like this woman or I should be like this woman. Uh, there's much, much more that's happening in the Old Testament. That there is uh, the, the one of the and this is I'm not going to rant here, uh, but there's a there's a problem when we want to uh, cut the line between the Old Testament and the New Testament too deeply. You understand what I'm saying? When we want to say that was then, this is now, or even as some people have said to me to, about the New Testament, that was then and this is now, as though we can now just make up stuff, which is uh, too often how we want to treat. Uh, Anyways, that's another sermon. Um, but let's get back. Let's go to the text, Exodus 33, 12 through 23. And we're going to read this and preach this as Christian scripture because the Old Testament is, it is the Hebrew Bible, but it is Christian scripture. All scripture is God-breathed and profitable, including the Old Testament. Okay, so stand as I read Exodus 33, 12 through 23, and let's see what God has for us. This morning, hear the word of the Lord. Moses said to the Lord, look, you have told me, lead this people up, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You said, I know you by name and you have also found favor with me. Now, if I have indeed found favor with you, please teach me your ways and I will know you so that I may find favor with you. Now consider that this nation is your people. And he replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. If your presence does not go, Moses responded to him, don't make us go up from here. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor with you unless you go with us? I and your people will be distinguished by, by this from all the other people on the face of the earth. The Lord answered Moses, I will do this very thing you have asked, for you have found favor with me, and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Please let me see your glory. He said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. The Lord said, here is a place near me. You are to stand on the rock 
And and when my glory passes by, I will put you in the crevice of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back, but my face will not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for the truths that we have both sung and said We thank you for the the truths that have just been read, the word of God that we have just heard. And Lord, as this is opened up before us by your grace, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear? Would you help us to understand? Would you transform us from one degree of glory into another as we behold Jesus revealed to us in your word? So, Father, I now pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, God, would you speak? Help us to see how outstanding a request that is that we might hear from you today. Father, speak to us. Your children, your church is listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. What is it? What, what is it? What is the one thing? Right now, think about it. What is the one thing that if this thing were to happen, if you were to have this thing, if this thing were to disappear, what is the one thing that would make you happy? What is the one thing that would make your life smooth? And I've already heard some of you say, give the right answer. But too often it's the wrong answer that bubbles up in us. Like if somebody were to say, what, you know, what is your only hope in life and death? Right. You might say Jesus. What is the greatest joy of your life? Jesus. But then we go out and we do something different. That there is a. A theoretical abstract nature to our satisfaction in Jesus. We can say it and then we live something else. And that something else, that it, that it would, that would satisfy you, that it that would just make your life a breeze, that would, if, if this would just happen, if this person would just appear or dis- disappear, settle down. God knows where Jimmy Hoffa is, okay? He'll find it anyways. If, if this would just work out, if this job would, would settle in, if this, this, this resume would land with the right person, then finally, finally everything would be right. And too often we live our lives jumping those hurdles. If I can just get here, if I can just get through school, if I can just graduate Or if I could just find a job. Or if I could just get a car. Or get out of my parents' house. Some of you, this is way in the rearview mirror, okay? I understand that. 
Hopefully it's right way in the rearview mirror. Uh, but for other, uh, others of us, it's not. If I could just get this thing, this possession, this whatever it might be. If I could get through car, if I could get a spouse, if we could have kids, if I could get that high flying job, if my retirement would be built up, if my house would quit crumbling down, if my family could quit, quit being knuckleheads, if we could just get it together, if all and we live our lives jumping these hurdles. And so when, when that is our focus and when that's the center of our thinking, that's how we go to God. God, would you sort this out? Would you, would you fix this person? It's never me. It's always them. It's them. That's a lie, by the way. It's you too. It's you too. Not the band. It's you also. But if this, God, God if, would, you, would you give me this? Would you give me this job? Would you help my boss act right? Would, he, would, would, you, would they see the hard work that I'm putting in? I'm really doing my best. Would you help my husband see, see me for who I am and love me? Would you, would you help my wife encourage me and, and not nag at me? It's not true in our household. I'm just giving you a... Don't y'all go back. No, that's not what I'm saying. Super supportive. If you would, if you would just give us children... I know that's a tension, and I'm not making light of these things. This is where you live life. You live life in in the midst of these hurdles, in the midst of these storms, these whirlwinds, these these longings and desires that aren't bad. It's good. right? It's good to want to grow up, get out of school, get a job, get married, have children, live a life that brings honor to God. Those are all good things. But the danger is, is that we might want the goods rather than God. Or even more devastating, that we might be satisfied in the goods rather than in God. And here's the thing. You will never be satisfied. You could have all of the goods. And I don't just mean material blessings. I I mean, you could have all of the stuff I just said. You could be uh, pain-free until you're 90 years old, go to sleep and meet Jesus. Hopefully. You could have the long marriage and all the kids who don't go astray and the grandkids who are just model citizens. Right? You could have everything. You could have all of the goods, all of the relationships, everything, and you will not be satisfied. And it will not be enough. It will always be the hurdle. Before I left for vacation, if you travel with four children, it's, it's something that's, that's not restful. I'll say that. You just, you, there is a circus here, and then you pack up the tent, and you move the circus there. Okay? <laughs> That's what vacation is now. That's what I've learned. So we were two weeks at the, at the beach, too, um, where children are being baked in the sun. And anyways, it's a, it was wonderful. It was great to get away. Uh, and it was great to spend time with the kids. But before I, I left, there was something that kind of, and I, I think I shared this with uh, at least Tony and Sage. We had breakfast a few weeks ago. and uh, that, that at the heart of things, that I, I sort of, I'm trying to think of how to articulate it before you. 
Um, but I've been convicted about, uh, about prayer. And about prayer in our church. And that how, when, when we pray, we, we, pray for, we pray for those hurdles. And that's fine. We pray when somebody's sick and God answers. When we meet on Wednesdays, we have a list and we pray through names. But my fear is that the way that we pray, which, y'all, if you're not doing, you know, if you're not helping with the meals, you're not, come pray. Wednesdays. Okay, if you're not helping with the kids, you, you know, you know. Um, and, and, we're, and, and as I'll kind of talk about it, we're going to build in some specific prayer events. We'll call them that. That sounds silly. But, but times of devoted prayer where we get together, we'll sing some songs and we're going to pray together. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to start doing that maybe quarterly. I haven't scheduled the first one. I'm trying to line it out. I just got back. But, uh, because, because prayer has to be at the heartbeat of our lives. As Jonathan Edwards says, prayer is, it must be our breath. We breathe in and ex- exhale prayer. But it says something about us and about me. This is about me as well. It says something about me and about us. If we would just pray for the hurdles, if God, you would heal this person, if you would sort this situation out, if you would, if you would do this in our country politically, then things will be easier you know, gas prices wouldn't be, I mean, we just drove all over South Carolina good with two, with two SUVs. Good grief. And then you get the, you know, I don't know about you guys, but I got, I, I get my, uh, I don't know what, what it's called. I'm not a financial guy, but I got my retirement thing back and I made the mistake of like clicking on it and it's down 17%. I'm like, oh, I don't know. Anyways, and, there, and that could cause despair. But if I'm only looking at those things, and if I'm only believing that those things are going to satisfy, or that somehow that that's going to sustain me, then my dependence is not on the Lord, it's on all of these other things and people and circumstances. And what that, that, that's all of those indicators are pointing back to idolatry. We don't like to call it that. But where, where there's something else, if the it in your life if, if, this, if this would just show up, if that is something other than the Lord himself, then there is an idolatrous root there. Again, I'm not saying that you shouldn't be concerned about any of those things. But if that's the foundation of your hope, your trust, your life, your joy, that's, that's, that's functional idolatry. You're worshiping something else. You understand? You're worshiping something else. You're devoting your attention and your time and your longing to something other than Jesus. Rather than saying, Jesus, you have given me my family. You have given me my children. You have given me my job and my house and my retirement. All of those things. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes down. Right? James 1.17. Do not be deceived. Every good gift comes from God. And so every good gift should turn my attention to the giver, not just to the gifts. The good in our lives should turn our attention to the goodness of God. When we encounter Moses here, 
It's hard to articulate how awful chapter 32 of Exodus is. Chapter 32, right? God has done this miracle. He has liberated a million plus people out of Egypt. Brought them through the Red Sea on dry land. Swallowed up Pharaoh and all of the chariots of Egypt. Brought them into the, the, into the wilderness, excuse me. And just giving them water from rocks. Really? He's su- supplying all of these people. They're grumbling, they're moaning, they're complaining, they're backbiting, they're murmuring. Yada, yada, yada. You know some of the story from Exodus. And then they come to Sinai where God is going to reveal his will, his word, his law to them. This is how you're going to be my people. This is how you're going to live out the covenant with me. This is how our relationship is going to be functionally worked out. And so Moses goes up on the mountain to meet with God. And the people are so terrified of God and his glory and the glory cloud and all the things that are happening, the loud noises, all this stuff. That they can't even go near the mountain. But rather than just sitting there and worshiping God, what do they do? Hey, Aaron, make a God for us. It's one of the moments, and there's multiple in the Bible, and there's multiple in our own lives. But it's multiple times in the, in the Bible where you're like, what? If you, you just want to take a couple of them by the collar and do some, it's like, I won't say that. You just want to bonk their heads together. What are you thinking? But sin bubbles up, and so they, they take off all their jewelry. Not all of it. They take off their earrings and their gold items and they put it all together and they melt it down and they make this cast metal calf. And they say, here are your gods. And even at one point, they give the name Yahweh to the thing. They wanted something they could see before them. Their idolatry was palpable and functional and they're, they're celebrating and, and there's revelry all around this metal thing. And God says, Moses, you, gotta, you go get your boys. It's about to be bad. And Moses comes down with tablets with God's fingerprints on them. God wrote in stone. And what does he do? Because the people have almost simultaneously, when, the, when that, the Mosaic covenant is crafted, the people break it. As soon as it's made, people break it. Broken stones, broken covenant. What should have happened to the people of Israel at that moment? Grease stain on the sands of Sinai. Is that graphic? Sorry. But this is, this should have, they should have been, the, they would have been the just recipients of the wrath of God. I mean, consider everything they've just seen. Not just the, I mean, the Red Sea is enough. Water spouting from a rock is enough. But they've just seen the world superpower brought to its knees by gnats and frogs and hail and death. It's as though with those ten plagues, Pharaoh's had his white knuckle grip on God's people. And with each plague, God takes what ought to be the strongest superpower of the day. And he bends one finger back at a time saying, those are my people. Until he finally breaks the back of Egypt. And then the people, the people run around on God. It's exactly how the Old Testament describes idolatry. Running around on God. 
actually uses harsher language that I'm not going to use today. But when we pick up in verse 12, we find that things God, God is not pouring out his wrath as he as he could. He's not dealing with them in judgment necessarily as he could. But things are not the same. They're not the same as they were. And it, it wasn't like the people were so great before, before chapter 32, right? They, they were still knuckleheads, but it just kind of blossomed into this apex of knuckleheaddom. That's, that's not in the dictionary, by the way, knuckleheaddom. Uh, so uh, chapter 32, and God sends a plague amongst them. So there is judgment, but it's not a wiping out of the people. And God says at the beginning of 33, go on up. Go on up to the land. I'm going to keep my promise to bring you into the land. I'm just not going to be with you. God offers Moses and the people, you can have the goods, but you can't have me. If you want your idols, I'm going to keep my promise because I keep my promises. But you can have the temporal blessings of the covenant, but you can't have the spiritual blessings of my presence. And the devastating question that popped into my head is, what would we do? Would we shake on it? Sounds good. And of course, we would never say that. We've played the spiritual game too much to actually admit that we might say, yeah. You know? If somebody were to take us up to the, the highest mountain of the world and say, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you will just worship me, we might. Mm. That should sound relatively familiar to you because that's what Satan did to Jesus. Here are all the goods. You don't get God. Here are all the goods of this world. Go on up and I'll give you the land. I won't go with you, but I'll send an angel. I'll send my messenger. So God's saying, I'm going to take my presence away. I'm still going to keep my promises, but I'm going to be farther away. And could you imagine for Moses? Things have already been difficult for him. Leadership of the people of Israel was no cupcake walk up to this point. And God's saying, I'm going to be further removed. And now there's going to be greater faith required. Greater obedience in a a more distant God. That had to terrify Moses. I'm going to bring you up there and to show that the arrangement is changed. Where the tabernacle used to be in the middle of the tent. I mean, the the tabernacle used to be in the middle of the camp, right? The tabernacle, if you read through the book of of Exodus, which you did a while ago. uh, But God gives the tabernacle as a visible symbol of his presence among his people. There are all these instructions in the book of Exodus about making, you know, what the curtains look like and what the, the roof is made out of and what the embroidery is like. It's tedious at times, but God is saying, I'm going to give you this beautiful symbol of a sanctuary among you and you'll have the Ark of the Covenant in the middle of the camp. So the, pe- so the tabernacle's there, the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence is in the middle of his people. The arrangement changes here in 33 where there's no longer we're no longer talking about a tabernacle with sacrifices and an ark of the covenant. None of that stuff is happening here. We're talking about a tent of meeting that is removed out of the middle of the camp and it's put at a distance from the camp. It's visible, but it's outside the camp. And this is now symbolic of God's relationship to Israel. I'm around. 
I'm around and I'm going to keep my promises, but you don't have me amongst you. And Moses would enter the tent and the people would notice Moses. And there was a standing invitation for anyone who wanted to come meet with God to come individually. But God would not dwell amongst his people lest he might destroy them. And so here in verse 12, we, kind of, we enter into Moses' intercessory prayer. Part of his, he intercedes multiple times for the people. But he says to God, he is, he's speaking God. This is prayer happening. And Mo, the gist of Mo, Moses' prayer is, he says, we, I, I don't want the goods without you. I don't want the goods. I don't want the gifts Without you, I don't want the land. I don't, don't be at a distance from me. He, he says, lead this. He said, look, you have told me, lead this people up. But you haven't told me who's going to go with me. You're leaving me out here by myself. You see, you've seen this people. You've seen what they do. You've seen how they act. How in the world am I supposed to get them to the promised land now that you're removing yourself far? Don't, don't leave us. The answer to the dilemma, to Moses' leadership dilemma, and to our dilemmas when we're walking through these hurdles, is not knowing God less, but knowing God more. And it's counterintuitive to the natural person. It, it seems like if we could just have this thing that I'm focusing on. And this is why sometimes your felt needs are deceptive to your actual needs. You understand what I'm saying? If you've ever had kids, you know this to be true. Right? What they say they need, they, they don't actually need all the time. Sometimes they do. I could give you about 80 stories from the last two weeks, but I mean, we don't, we're running out of, we got, we're on a clock here, okay? But you understand. Daddy, I need this. No, no, you really don't need that toy. That $30 thing that you'll play with two times and then break. Because you chew on it, right? Whatever. Um, but, but the same, same remains true for us. God, I really need this. I need this person. I need this job. I need this money. I need this retirement. Fill in the blank. I need this thing that's right in front of me. And what God is trying to communicate to you this morning is saying, okay, what you really need is me. Every need in this life should remind you of your neediness of God. Every need, daily needs, right? Air, food, water. To other needs, all of our needs should lead us to God. Not just as a vending machine if we put the right, you know, if I, if I pray for 15 minutes, you should give me 15 blessings. Or inflation, right? I pray for 15 minutes and you give me five blessings. But too often that's how we treat God. As though he were some, somehow subservient. Somehow he was here to serve your agenda rather than you serving his. And so Moses' dilemma, the goods versus God. He says, I would rather know God. I, 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 you said, I know you by name. You found favor with me. If I have found favor with you, please teach me your ways. So if you're going to know God, you know God's grace. And the avenue, the, the, 
portal through which you know the grace of God is your need. You don't reach a place of understanding the grace of God by being self-satisfied. You don't reach neediness in a position to receive the grace of God if you think you have if, if you think all you need is already here. Do you understand what I'm saying? Need introduces you to grace. This is exactly the point Jesus is saying. I did not call, come to call the righteous, but the sick. I didn't come to call the self-satisfied, but for those who know their need. So, dear one, do you know your need? If you know that you don't have it all together, you know that you don't have everything you need in this life, you know that there's something in you that isn't quite right, let the need introduce you to the grace of God. Your brokenness should introduce you to the grace of God. It should not propel you away from him. So know God's grace five times favor. The word favor shows up in this passage. And that's just an Old Testament way of saying grace. So you know God by his grace. Know God's grace. Know God's ways. Teach me your ways that I may find favor with you. Verse 13 Know God's ways, know God's laws, God's standards, God's promises, God's purposes. Know God's ways. Moses' dilemma is only solved by God revealing himself. So when God says, when Moses says, teach me your ways, he he is not asking for a, a personal, emotional, mystical experience. He is saying, what you have revealed in your word, help me to understand that. What you are teaching me through revealed revelation. For us, what does that mean? You don't know God's ways apart from God's word. You don't know God's ways apart from God's word. You don't know God's law. You don't know God's promises. You don't know God's standards. You don't know God's purposes. How on earth could you say, teach me your ways and then run away from his scriptures? Trying to go to the mountaintop to have some trance. Some mystical experience apart from God and his word. You'll find something there. And it's not God. You'll come back from that mountain of mysticism saying, God told me this. And it's something that he doesn't say in his word. You'll find some spirit. You'll find some revelation. But it is not the revelation of God. There are demonic forces that will deceive you. There's more I could say, but we won't say that. I won't say that. But know God's purposes. So, so when Moses is saying, let me know you. I want to know you better. I want to know you more. Help me know your grace. Help me know your ways. And then he says this beautiful phrase at the end of 13. Now consider that this nation is your people. He couches his request in what God is doing for all of the people of God. Moses asks to know God not for his own self-interest but for God's purposes amongst his people. Now, this has particular application for those of us who have leadership roles, offices in the church. God, help me know you, not just for my sake, but for their sake. 
You could see this all over Paul's letters. You could see this in the life of Jesus as well. Help me know you for their sake. Help me go through what I'm going through for their sake. But that also applies to you. Seek to know God for his purposes for you. Not just that he's going to fill in these, or he's going to help you jump these hurdles. Or he's going to meet these needs that you feel. But that he might bring you into alignment to see new needs and new wants and new desires. So know God's way, grace, know God's ways. Oh, the final point of know God's ways is in verse 16. That we know God's ways. We know his law, which I've just sort of mentioned. I haven't really dove into and I'm not going to right now. We know God's promises. We know God's purposes that he's he's purposed to bring his people Israel into the promised land. What has he purposed for us? He has purposed to gather a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation and bring them into a new heavens and a new earth to inhabit a new Jerusalem. That's God's purpose. I mean, if if you're curious about that, read the end of the book. Right? What's God's will for you? That you would dwell in glory forever with Him. Through Jesus Christ alone. But notice... That God's favor exercised toward the people of God is meant to showcase His grace to the nations. That as we become a people that are defined, right? We're defined and set apart, not by our moralism, right? Israel's not defined. Understand this. Somebody put the Buick back. I miss my. I don't have the podium anymore. This that calls it. when they flip it. Uh, train of thought. That Israel's defined not by their law keeping. Because they've already they, they, they mess that pooch up all the time. They're, they're defined by the grace of God given to them. Right? Verse 16. How will it be known that I and your people have found favor? There's the word again. We found grace with you unless you go with us. They're defined by grace in the presence of God. I and your people will be distinguished by this grace and presence from all of the other people on the face of the earth. What am I trying to say? That one of the most evangelistic things that could be is that we would be a people marked by the grace of God. Marked not by our arrogance and our haughtiness that we figured it out, but we're marked by our neediness and our clinging to what God has given us in Jesus. That's compelling to a world that is lost and broken when there is a people being healed and mended by what God does in Jesus. That's something that this world knows nothing about except through us. But when we seek out the goods rather than God, This world has nothing for that. They've seen that already. And especially self-satisfied Christians who have no room for the grace of God. That is the spirit of Phariseeism. Finally, know God's glory. So the Lord finally relents. He says in verse 17, the Lord answered, I will do this very thing. It's not just going to be an angel. I'm going to go. I'm going to go. I will do this very thing that you have asked, for you have found favor with me. It is only by grace that you will reach the promised land. 
Let me say that again. It is only by grace that you will reach the promised land that the Lord has for you. When you, you know, ever hear that song on Jordan's Stormy Banks, I stand, you know, when, I, when, you, when you step into glory and the new heavens and the new earth, you will know in that glorified state that you have only arrived there by the grace of God. So don't run or hide your neediness today. Your brokenness does not exempt you from the grace of God. It qualifies you for the grace of God. Only those who deny their brokenness, only those who deny their sin, who deny their neediness, only those are exempted from the grace of God because they won't be honest with God. But Moses, in response to this, almost worshipfully says, please let me see your glory. This outstanding request that is, and God's saying, I'll show you my goodness. You'll see my back. You can't see my face because if you see my face, you'll die. Because God is holy. So he says, I will proclaim the name of the Lord. I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, before you. When God talks about his name, or as we were just singing about the name of Jesus, it is not a magical incantation. But the name, when you talk about the name of God or the name of Yahweh or the name of Jesus, it's shorthand for his person and his work. Who is he and what is he doing? Who is he and what has he done? What is he like? I'm going to let my, the name of the Lord pass before you. And how does he describe his name? How, did he, how does God describe himself here? What is the name of Yahweh? I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The grammatical thing here is called apposition with an A, not an O, not opposition, but apposition. Tip, tip, to, tip of the cap to the nerds in the room. There you go. Um, that this is, these are the same thing. God is saying, I will be freely gracious and freely compassionate or freely merciful. And this is who I am. God equates his character and his nature with grace and mercy. And later on in, in chapter 30, 34, one of my favorite passages, when the Lord actually passes in, in, in verse 6 of 34, and he says, this is what God says. The Lord, the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He is compassionate and gracious. If this is who God is, then you can come with your stuff. You can come with your sin. You can come with your fears, with your anxieties. You can come with a heart that ought to be now broken because of idolatry. Saying, Lord, forgive me for looking at all these other things, for seeking joy and satisfaction only in these other things. Let me come to you. Come to you. This is who God is. And his grace is his to distribute. His grace is his to distribute. The freedom here resides with God. That is a, another sermon. But the freedom here is, belongs to God. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Compassion. 
But he added, you cannot see my face, for humans cannot see me and live. But dear ones, we have an even greater testimony of the glory of God than even Moses had. We have the word from John chapter 1, verse 14, and we'll end here. The word, this is the second person of the Trinity, the Son, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we observed his glory, the glory as the only, one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Other translations say, we have seen his glory. If you want to know the glory of God, you want to know the full demonstration, the full revelation of who God is, look to Jesus. If you want to know the full glory of God, look to Jesus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. They saw his face. The very face of God. Verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The one and only son who is himself God is at the father's side. He has revealed him. There is no greater knowledge of God than the knowledge of God that comes to us in Jesus. So if you would know God and you would have God over the goods and you would have the giver over the gifts. Come to Jesus. If you are hurting today. Come to Jesus. If you're fearful and broken, come to Jesus. Here is the fullness of God's knowledge to us. Would you know who God is? Look to Christ and Christ alone. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are good to us. And that, Lord, we don't have to be shielded in the cleft of a rock, but we through faith, can behold Christ. God walking amongst us, breathing the air and walking the dust, the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you give us eyes to trust you even in the whirlwinds that we would quit jumping the hurdles believing that things will be better on the other side And would we trust you in every circumstance? That we would know that Christ has died and Christ has risen. And that by grace, we will one day see him as he is. Lord, for any that are here that have not known you, who have not trusted you. Would would you help them to see graciously that they have no excuse? That the only thing that would keep them from you is them. Would you soften their heart and change their mind that they might turn away from this world, turn away from the things that would grip them and have new life in Jesus. I pray for your church, your people, that you would save us Save us from being satisfied in the goods. Never looking to the good God who gives us these things. Give us hearts that trust you. Hearts that obey you. That we might know your grace. Know your ways. And know your glory. 
in Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.